You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. This edition of It's My Money is brought to you by Brenthurst Wealth, your partner for global wealth creation. Welcome to It's My Money. It's My Money is brought to you by Brenthurst Wealth, and Brenthurst Wealth has been voted SA's top boutique wealth manager in 2023. And from Brenthurst Wealth, I'm pleased to say we've got Magnus Haystack today. And Magnus, you wrote an article for the Daily Investor, and it sort of teases, and it talks about going off the grid, and you think, okay, he's going to talk about solar panels and boreholes and things like that. And indeed, you do that in the first part of this article but then of course you're talking about going off the grid financially which is a clever way to lead into that but tell me about your experience first of all with solar panels and boreholes if you can well good afternoon Lindsay you know I uh, like many South Africans we were forced to go off the grid with water so I put in a bore out a couple of years ago and that has been a fantastic investment I don't have to worry about water and water bills and I can water my garden all day long if I wish to do so yes. and and then secondly as a, as a result of the increase in load shedding you know eventually my wife just said come on Magnus take out your piggy bank and put some solar panels onto our house and you know Peace and calm has dawned on this on the Haystack household. We have power whenever we want it. We don't even notice it. It's it was a fantastic investment, I think, in a lifestyle. So when we 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 just don't notice that the power has gone off because we work from home, so we need that uninterrupted power. And again, it was a superb call. So when I started writing this article about three, four weeks ago, I thought I need a different angle on something. As as you well know, as a journalist, you're always looking for an angle. Yes. And then the concept of going off the grid financially came into my head. It just popped into my head. And I started thinking about it. It's entirely possible to live in South Africa, but go off the grid financially with virtually most if not all of your money to enjoy the sunshine and and what the country has to offer but your money is not affected by what the politicians are doing to us and 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 that struck a chord I've, i've i've never had such a response to an article and everybody says that is very smart and it's mm-hmm. very, very doable. So you had a sort of an epiphany. So you you thought of getting off the grid and then you applied it financially. You've been applying that sort of thing, that sort of philosophy for many, many years now. And people go on about Magnus Haystack being disloyal and unpatriotic and that sort of thing. But of course, that's a lot of nonsense. But you package it differently and in a clever way. And that's probably why your epiphany has been so well received. Now, you talk about substantial growth offshore. You say uh, their net wealth has grown substantially over the past 10 years and more when compared to the local bitter einders who saw offshore investments as somehow being disloyal or unpatriotic, as I said, which is rubbish, of course, which is what I also said. Just give us the background to being offshore, please, Magnus, from your perspective. You've got to remember you come from a country that under the apartheid regime and for many years under the new regime suffered from foreign exchange control so there was a control over your money and you could not invest where you wish to do so as many people around the world can do they've got total freedom to choose where and when and in what instrument they wish to invest so we came from a kind of a lager 
mindset that you have to invest in South Africa because you're not allowed to. It was it was a vicious crime, and you get locked out if you got money out of the country. So that set was still very prevalent, despite the fact that the gates had gradually been opened. And it was quite astonishing the reaction from many commentators and even certain media outlets when I started writing articles about taking some money offshore purely for diversification purposes. They slammed me, called me all kinds of names and disloyal and I'm Dr. Doom and I must bugger off. And the more I try to explain, you know, the concept of taking some money offshore, the more I was labeled, you know, I'm disloyal, etc. And which is crazy. It's like the old Afrikaner families. I remember growing up in an Afrikaans community where, you know, no... Uh, Afrikaans daughter will ever marry a bloody Engelsman. You know, it was that kind of attitude that was still prevalent. That you know, if you you do just do not leave the lager and beyond the lager, and and, and you know, of course, that's all just disappeared now. But in the early days, it was extremely difficult to stand in front of an audience of two or three hundred people and say, you know, guys, I think you must take some of your money offshore because there are fantastic opportunities elsewhere in the world and. Uh, so I've gone through that cycle, and, and even now today, people are still saying, we don't want to emigrate, and, and B, but we need to protect our capital from the destruction created by the ANC. And that was the sort of genesis of that article. Okay, well, then we'll go from uh, Genesis on into the, the book itself. Uh, you say many global fund managers view the SA equity market as being a classic value trap. This has been evident in the massive outflow of capital from our bond and equity markets since 2018. Okay, that's the backdrop. Now you talk about how to get money out legally and responsibly. First of all, you've got the 1 million rand single discretionary allowance, the SDA which was not revolutionary when it first was announced, but a good step in the right direction. It was indeed, you know, one million rand, it was, you know, the allowance was pushed up to a million rand on the 1st of April 2015, which is just more than eight years ago. It hasn't been changed since then. And if you wanted more or you had more, you could apply for the 10 million rand individual investment allowance. So effectively, you could externalize, you know, all your assets if you wanted to. And argument comparing the returns offshore with local and, and local has doubled your returns. So, you know, that's a well-established trend. But a lot of people still had money locked up in pension funds, retirement annuities, preservation funds, which were still locked into South Africa. And also, you know, people had residential property investments or, or commercial property. Those are the asset classes that are brutally exposed to what the ANC is doing. And those investments have not done very well. If you look at pension fund returns in South Africa the last 10 years has barely, barely matched inflation, if not under inflation. Your residential properties, with the exception of the Western Cape, has dropped by 30 to 40% against inflation. And listed property even more so, down 50%. So those are the asset classes that you want that are getting off the grid selling or getting offshore in your retirement annuities. And there are ways and means of doing it. With the end result, you could live in South Africa, but your, your assets could be invested in offshore equity directly. You could be invested in asset swaps. You could be invested in retirement annuities with 95% offshore exposure. And then you could invest in gold, which has been a superb investment 
not linked to the uh, the fortunes of South Africa, and and, and lo and behold, some bitcoins. So you could protect your global wealth, but still have a South African lifestyle. And and a lot of people said, boy, that makes a lot of sense, which yeah. it does, based on the last 10 years or so. Yes, indeed. I mean, you talk about, so you say over 55 question mark, and you talk about how much is invested in retirement annuities. And you don't know, but you, you say it must be hundreds of billions. And you say people with money into one or more of these non-performing portfolios need to strongly consider cashing out of these funds. So you're saying to people, you've got an RA, you've had an RA for 12 years or something, but now get out of it. Aren't there penalties? Isn't it difficult? How easy is it to extricate yourself elegantly from an RA, for example? Certain type of RAs do have penalties, but I think the, the, the life insurance industry is overblowing the effect of those penalties. And if you if you see how quickly your new growth or your future growth improves, you will quickly catch up any penalties and benefit tremendously. And very few people know that they can do that. They all think they have to wait until the end of the term. But when I say that the investment returns have been poor, I mean very poor. We're talking about as bad as 3 to 4% per annum for 20 years. So I, I've been telling people, if you hit 55, take your money away from these non-performing assets. If there is a penalty, pay it and get your funds into offshore funds, which I did myself with my own money. Mm. I was getting 3 to 4%. So, you know, that, that the, the insurance industry is trying to scare people with the penalties. I'm saying they're negligible in the long run. You've mentioned property. It's easy to, to say sell a property, but it's an illiquid asset. And it must be quite difficult for people to say, well, um, you know, I've had it in my family for so many years and now it's 30% less than it was being advertised for five years ago. So it's, it's, it's an emotional thing and also a liquidity factor. But um, yeah, it's got to be done. You, you say take the pain. I mean, you, you take the pain with the penalties and you take the pain with the property as well, Magnus. It's worth it in the longer term. You know, it's, it sounds radical, but if you look at residential property, and, and I've been saying this for about 10 years now, and I've sold most of my properties in, you know, these investment properties in, in, in the Gauteng area because they just were not giving a return. And, you know, we see many, many clients who come to us with, and we analyze their portfolios, and the weakest portion of their portfolios is in, invariably their so-called investment port properties they just haven't made money they cost you money their money is locked up and we've been telling them for many many years flog it sell it mm. it's not going to get better and uh, i can say that people are you know the penny really is dropping because people are getting prices they could have got five to even ten years ago the prices mm. have not increased and the costs have gone through the roof and and it's all linked to the collapse of the municipalities in the north and Joburg and Pretoria and Potts of Struam and those places. But it is emotional, as you say. It's, people are very emotional about properties, uh, particularly women. They, um, they get emotionally attached to bricks and mortar, and they just cannot let go because they see it as a form of safety and a, a place to go. Home Which to. is understandable. Mm. But, which is understandable, you know the, the whole you know caveman kind of undertone. We we but 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 it's not a good investment, and especially not when your municipality is collapsing around you, when the potholes and the, the robots and the water supply and the sewage supply. You know, it's a package deal, and you can't expect your property prices to go up 
when everything else is collapsing because there's just no market and nobody wants to buy it, as opposed to the Cape, the Western Cape, where it's just the opposite. I mean, the prices are rocketing. Why? Because there's good governance in the municipalities, there's maintenance, there's new roads, the waterworks, the municipality staff are friendly and helpful. And then people say, I, I'm prepared to pay a premium to live in those areas. And, and we're seeing that in South Africa at the moment. You've got eight provinces where property is a disaster and one province where it's a fantastic investment. Yeah, on the other hand, you say get rid of your property, but you make an exception with the Western Cape because if someone, for example, packs up from Hauteng, um, wherever it is, and moves to the Western Cape, what do you suggest they do? Do you suggest they rent? Because that doesn't give uh, people very much security, particularly if they've got a family because they might have to move in uh, 18 months, two years because the house is being sold or something. Uh, so you would still advocate buying, but buying in the correct area. Absolutely. Area has become more important than, than, than anything else. You know, outside of the Western Cape and maybe certain parts of KZN, maybe the north coast of KZN, you know, I, I keep track of all these investment trends, of the property pricing trends, and really there's been very, very little growth outside of those areas that I've mentioned. Plett, maybe, George, Neisner. You know, as a result of semigration, you know, those markets are still firm. But inland, I mean, Bloemfontein is a disaster. Joburg, Pretoria, Bombos, you name it. They are disaster areas. People cannot get rid of their, of their properties. Yeah. In conclusion, you say, I think getting off the grid financially is set to become a major theme for South Africans who do not want to emigrate. We understand that. Or cannot afford to. We definitely understand that. They live and play in South Africa, pay their taxes here and shout for the bocker. But their wealth is growing outside of SA. So you've got the best of both worlds, Magnus. Do you still find sceptics, though? Do you still find people saying, well, South Africa's cheap. The JSC is undervalued. It's also under pressure because it's only got 300 companies left and it was 800. And shrinking rapidly. Yeah. I think there are a number of local fund managers who are really trying very hard to play on the patriotic strings and saying, you know, it's... But, you know, they, they're talking to their books because money is flowing out and, and the returns are not there. So they're desperately trying to talk up their books. They're not financial advisors. They don't know the consequences of bad advice. There's just no comeback. Financial advisors do have uh, a, a different responsibility. We're more worried about the long-term outcomes. And as you said, the JSC is shrinking. The foreigners have been net sellers for, I think, six years in a row now. And if the foreigners, and we speak to the foreign fund managers, they do not see South Africa as a compelling investment decision. So if a local fund manager says, you know, we offer such great value. I'm saying, well, why are the smart foreigners not seeing that? Are they blind or are they stupid? Mm. I, I think not. I, I just think not. I think they have a much more realistic assessment of the, the JSC and the, and the JSC companies because they can do so much better elsewhere in the world. And we've seen it this year. I mean, the JSC year to date is now down in dollar terms about 15%, whereas S&P 500 is up up 15, and the Nasdaq is up 25, and Japan is up almost 30%. The disparity in the wealth creation between us and the rest of the world is getting just so big. Uh, people are working it out for themselves. They they not buying the SAS cheap story anymore. 
And the other thing is, which is more simplistic than your analysis about uh, uh, relative performances, is let's say that you're a kid, you've just, you've just got a fantastic qualifications, you're sitting down on the emerging markets desk of a merchant bank or something or investment house in London, and your first task is, as you get your feet under the desk, is the bloke says, right, have a look at all the emerging markets and see which ones are in- investable, see which ones are compelling. And they go down the list and he comes to South Africa and he says, okay, all the things that we've just said, Magnus, plus he says, it's not really investable because yesterday, for example, on the JSE, there was less than 13 billion rands worth of trade. Translate that into dollars. It's, it, it's not an option for these, these fund managers. It's too small. It's becoming illiquid. And, and you know, unfortunately, those hangers on are still sticking with most of their funds. And it's local, the local pension funds, uh, you know, will have a greater share of the JSE, but the performance is under pressure. There's a financial repression on returns. And you can see it. Very interesting. We had a seminar this week with some fund managers, and they showed the last 10 years, five years, seven years. The difference in performance between the worst and the best fund manager in, in, in the, the top categories has shrunk. So there's very little outperformance of the market like you used to find 20 or 15 years ago where you have a bright front manager who beats the market so nobody's beating the market that's quite it's quite astounding all the top names they all have virtually the same returns why because the the pond that they're fishing is catching the same fish and they're all becoming index huggers at a very expensive rate so the investing public is working that out for themselves because they look at their returns and they said, it ain't here. It ain't here. Okay. Thanks very much for that, uh, Magnus. Fascinating stuff, as always. You've repackaged what you've been saying for many, many years now in a very easily digestible form. That's Magnus Haystack from Brentos Wealth. And that was It's My Money. It's My Money was brought to you by Brentos Wealth, an award-winning boutique wealth management company.